Welcome to the Brookings Cafeteria, the podcast about ideas and the experts who have them. I'm Fred Dews. To meet the opportunity of a new administration in Washington, even with the possibility of a divided Congress, Brookings has launched the Blueprints for American Renewal and Prosperity Project, which is publishing federal policy recommendations in five challenge areas. These are racial justice and worker mobility, economic growth and dynamism, governance, both domestic and international, international security, and climate and resilience. On this second episode from the Blueprints Project, two of the authors of policy recommendations in the economic growth and dynamism area discuss their proposals. William Gale is the R.J. and Francis Fearing Miller Chair in Federal Economic Policy, a Senior Fellow in Economic Studies, Director of the Retirement Security Project, and Co-Director of the Urban Brookings Tax Policy Center. His paper, co-authored with Tax Policy Center Senior Research Assistant Grace Enda, is a proposal for more economic relief and stimulus. Richard Reeves is the John C. and Nancy D. Whitehead Chair, a Senior Fellow in Economic Studies and Director of both the Future of the Middle Class Initiative and the Center on Children and Families. His proposal, co-authored with Isabel Sawhill, is a post-COVID plan for the middle class, tax wealth, not work, and provides scholarships for service. Also in this episode, a new edition of Wessel's Economic Update, in which David Wessel, Senior Fellow and Director of the Hushin Center on Fiscal and Monetary Policy at Brookings, says that although the federal debt is rising, interest rates are very low, and so President Joe Biden and Congress should still borrow more to pay for COVID-related relief to alleviate suffering and bring the economy back to full employment. You can follow the Brookings Podcast Network on Twitter, at Policy Podcasts, to get information about and links to all our shows, including Dollar and Cents, the Brookings Trade Podcast, The Current, and our events podcast. First up, Wessel's Economic Update. I'm David Wessel, and this is my economic update. A few facts about the federal debt. One, the federal debt is larger than it's been at any time since the end of World War II. Two, because the tax code won't yield enough revenue to cover projected future spending, the federal debt will continue rising and is on an unsustainable trajectory, unless Congress does something. Three, interest rates, the ones that the market sets, have been declining for decades. They're now at historic lows, and best guess, they're likely to remain low for the foreseeable future. With those facts in mind, what should Joe Biden and Congress be doing, budget-wise, next year? Should they borrow more to pay for COVID-related relief to the unemployed, to those who can't afford to buy food, to prevent state and local governments from cutting back? Yes, both to alleviate suffering and to get the economy back to full employment. Should they worry now about the federal debt? No. The federal government is borrowing huge sums of money and paying interest at less than 1% on tenure debt. At those low rates, lower than the rate of inflation, the U.S. government can sustainably service a much larger federal debt than most of us used to think possible. Looking beyond the COVID-19 pandemic, should Congress pay for spending increases either with tax increases or with offsetting spending cuts? It depends. We should not throw ourselves a party just because interest rates are low and we can borrow so cheaply. A simple rule would be that we should pay for things that we consume today. That means defense, social security, medical care for older folks, park rangers, airport security, salaries of most bureaucrats. But we should not hesitate to borrow at today's very low interest rates for public investments that will pay off in the future. Basic science, spreading broadband across the country, green energy, roads, where they're really needed, healthcare and education for children and poor families. Doesn't government borrowing crowd out private borrowing and investment? At some point, yes. But the fact that interest rates are so persistently low tells us right now that's not the problem. 
Low interest rates are a signal that there is a lot of saving in the world relative to the private demand to use it to fund investment. While federal borrowing does tend to push up interest rates, right now and for the foreseeable future, other more powerful factors are pushing interest rates down. And I'm not talking about the Federal Reserve here. I'm talking about things like demographics, productivity, and technology. Shouldn't we worry about bequeathing a lot of debt to the next generation? We should worry about our kids and our grandkids. But what will be best for them 25 or 50 years from now? A smaller federal debt and less public investment? Or a larger debt and more productivity enhancing public investment and thus a higher standard of living? At today's very low interest rates, there's a good argument for the latter. Okay, you might ask, how do we decide what's investment and thus okay to borrow for and what's not? It's hard. And there's a temptation to say that spending one favors is investment no matter what it is. But that shouldn't stop us from increasing federal spending on things for which there is strong evidence of a payoff in the future, like pre-K or health care for low-income kids or getting rid of lead pipes in water systems or developing technology to arrest global warming. If we can pay for infrastructure spending with, say, a higher gas tax or with higher taxes on the very well-off, great, let's do it. But if we can't get that through Congress, better to borrow to make those investments than not to make them at all. But if something is unsustainable, and I did say that the federal debt can't keep rising as a share of the economy indefinitely, won't we have to do something someday? Almost surely. Federal revenues measured as a share of the economy are at historic lows, and those revenues are not even sufficient to cover current federal spending, let alone the higher spending projected in the future. Federal spending is rising primarily for two reasons. One, we're an aging society, in large part because women are having fewer kids, and the federal government spends a lot on the elderly. And two, healthcare spending rises faster than other things, though actually not quite as much faster as it used to, and the government pays a big part of the national health bill. So unless the economy evolves in ways that are far different from what we expect, we will eventually have to raise taxes or cut benefits or both. And in any case, we need to continue to work to make the world's most expensive healthcare system more efficient so it can deliver good care at lower cost. Low interest rates give us more time, but they don't eliminate the need for those politically tough choices. Now, here's my interview with William Gale and Richard Reeves on their proposals from the Blueprints for American Renewal and Prosperity. Bill and Richard, welcome to you both back to the Brookings Cafeteria podcast. Thank you. Thanks for having us. So I want to start by asking each of you to comment on what you think about the theme that both of the papers that you've co-authored in the Blueprints for American Renewal and Prosperity series are contained in, and that's economic growth and dynamism. And I think I know what economic growth is, but what does dynamism mean to you? Bill, would you start with that? Sure. Economic growth is just the expansion of the economy. We need more than that. We need shared and sustainable growth. We need a widespread expansion of the economy, a widespread boost in living standards of all people, not just the wealth of a few. Dynamism is a key part of achieving that. Nothing stays constant forever. And the ability to adapt to change is a central feature of what makes for a successful country, a successful company, a successful individual. At the macro level, that means adjusting fiscal and monetary policy to respond to changing conditions. At the micro level, it can mean all sorts of things, education policy, 
equipping people with the knowledge and skills so they can adjust to changes in industries or work patterns, unemployment insurance, which lets people look for the right job after they've been laid off, uh, housing policies so people can relocate if they need to, health insurance policies so people can change jobs if they want to or need to and get a better match, child care policies so society can reap the full benefits of having women be more educated than they were in the past, and so on, energy and transportation policy that allows us to build without unnecessarily destroying the ecosystem. So all these factors come together under the umbrella of the overall economy and how dynamic it is. How about you, Richard? Yeah, so I agree with everything Bill said. When economists talk about dynamism, they tend to think about how many businesses are being created? Are people moving to jobs? What's happening to productivity? All of these things will affect then the overall amount of growth. But the other thing I think I would add is to sort of move slightly outside of the sort of narrow lane of economics is to think about the idea of social dynamism is the idea of being able to move up, the idea of opportunity, the idea that you're not stuck in place, the idea that there are opportunities in front of you, the idea that the future is reliably going to be better than the past. All of these things are kind of as much about the way society feels and operates, just about the economy. And of course, as human beings, we don't sort of do economics eight hours a day and then society the remaining part of the day. We're all creatures who live both economically and socially. And so the concern is that the lower growth and the lower economic and social dynamism has truncated people's opportunities in the US in a way that I think is causing a lot of the anxiety that we're seeing being played out in not only U.S. politics, but also the concerns that economists have about our future. So this episode is the second in our series on the Blueprints project. And I asked our guests last week, Annalise Goger and Martha Ross, to talk about, this at a very high level, what their two papers were all about to kind of set the stage for the rest of this conversation. So I want to ask you both to lay out at a very high level the policy challenges and your solutions so that listeners can keep that in mind as we go into more detail. Bill, do you want to get us started with that? Sure. My paper has a very simple, direct point, and that is we need to focus on helping the economy right now. Even though there is a long-term debt issue hanging over us, we will have plenty of time to deal with the long-term issue, and we should not let it stand in the way of government relief or stimulus now. I'm not sure. Do you want to... Just at a high level, explain what your paper is all about. Now I'm wishing that my paper was as simple and direct as Bill's paper. The paper that I've written with Bell Sawhill, it does have a simple message, which is that the economic growth we have seen in recent decades, last, say, four decades, has not been evenly distributed. We've seen a rise in inequality, and in particular, the growth of the incomes of the middle class. I run the Future of the Middle Class initiative here at Brookings. Of the middle class has been slower than the growth of the incomes of both the people above them and below them. In fact, it's been about, depending on how you measure it, half as quick the growth in the middle as at the top and the bottom, close to 40% than either 80 or, or 100%. So it's not true to say there's been no growth in middle-class incomes in the US. That's not true. But the growth has been pretty slow, and it's been much slower in the middle than it has at the tails. And so that, again, I think is that's a problem, and that's not going to be solved by economic growth alone, even if we knew how to magically increase economic growth, there's a question as to who does that growth flow to. And in recent years, it has not been flowing to those in the middle. So there is something of a stagnation in terms of the rate of growth in the middle of the distribution. That's the problem. I will take a deep dive into both of your papers here in a moment. I just want to flag for listeners that your papers and the others in this set on 
economic growth and dynamism are all on our website, brookings.edu slash blueprints. Bill, you mentioned just a few moments ago that there are concerns about the long-term debt. We have debt concerns about deficit that we hear every year that Congress is debating the budget. Just kind of a political question. Is it fair to say that you know, whenever a Democrat wins the White House, as we've just seen over the past few weeks, the, the GOP rediscovers its concern about the deficit? And more generally, I mean, can you talk about what are the concerns about deficit and debts and why we shouldn't worry so much about the short term? We do have a long-term debt issue, but it's not a crisis. It's not something that merits immediate attention, especially given the state of the virus and the economy. So Republicans, as you mentioned, they do say there's a debt problem when Democrats are in power. And they've acknowledged publicly that this is essentially a talking point rather than something driving their policy. But there is a point at which we need to deal with long-term debt. It's just not anytime soon. The best way to think about this is the best way to address the long-term budget is to have a strong long-term economy. And the best way to do that is to strengthen the economy right now. Besides the lower living standards that the economy is generating, there's a humanitarian concern as well. And that alone should cause us to act. But in fact, the economic weakness right now can be causing long-term damage. People are not working. Women are leaving the labor force. Kids are not getting the education they should be getting. Normally functioning businesses are being forced to shut down. All of that will have deleterious long-term consequences. So if we care about the long-term economy and the long-term budget, we should be doing those things right now. There's a legitimate argument of political economy about how much the government should spend, what the size of the government should be, what the tax take, what the fiscal requirements are, and so on, which you can have. That argument can be a sort of reasonable left-right liberal conservative argument. And something very different about a moment where you're sort of, you've had the economic equivalent of a meteorite strike in the pandemic, and you're trying to hold the structure of the economy together. You're trying to keep the engine running. And that's a very, very different kind of argument. And it feels to me as if some people, largely Republicans, are finding it hard to make that distinction, right, between a sort of long-run philosophical argument about the size of government and a short-run argument about, we've just been hit by this meteorite, we've got to keep things to go. Is that fair, Bill? Yes, this is a very different recession than recessions we've had in the past because, in a sense, we want people out of the labor force. We want people not dealing with each other until we can get the virus under control. And so everything that you said about the benefits of stimulus in this particular situation are amplified by the fact that interest rates are historically low. So the government has plenty of room to borrow money and clearly financial markets are not worried about the fiscal status of the government right now. One other thing I'll add is also consistent with all this is that historically countries tend to cut off stimulus too soon. We saw this earlier in the last decade after the Great Recession. It happened in the 1930s. It happened in Japan in the 1990s and certainly Europe after the Great Recession. So historically, policymakers have gotten religion about fiscal concerns too soon. That is before the economy is fully recovered. So I think that there are several distinctions in the current episode from previous recessions, and they all point toward doing more now. Well, having served in the UK government in 2010, I have to agree. Well, if I could follow up on Richard's point too, because I think Richard's point about the 
tremendous impact that this event has had on the economy now kind of speaks to the distinction you make in the paper between economic stimulus and relief. So can you talk about what that distinction is for a second? Sure. This is one of the big ways in which this recession is different from earlier recessions. Normally, during a recession, what you want to do is give people incentives to get back in the workforce. You want to give firms incentives to invest more. That's stimulus. Relief is similar, but different. And that's paying people to stay out of the labor force, making it possible for people to survive financially while they are observing the public health guidelines that we need them to observe. There's also a third policy I should mention, which is anti-COVID policy. And it cannot be emphasized enough, COVID policy is economic policy right now. We will not get the economy operating at full employment again until we get the virus under control. So I think what we need right now is relief along with the anti-COVID policy And then when the time comes, we'll see if we need more stimulus. It might well be that once the virus is contained, that the economy bounces back fairly rapidly. I think this also underlines another distinction, which is implicit in what you're saying about the concern over incentives. There's a concern when you're providing financial assistance to someone who's out of work or is in a a difficult situation that it's going to disincentivize work, right? There's a long-standing debate to what extent do different welfare benefits disincentivize work or incentivize them and so on. But to some extent, the politics of that is just completely different now for the reasons you just said, Bill, which is like, we're a lot less worried about disincentivizing people from going to work when the purpose of the policy is to allow people not to go to work. In fact, to discourage them from going to work, right? So it's not just, this is not just a sort of nuanced difference in the economics of public policy. It's a reversal of the typical way we think about incentives in this area. And again, I think there's been a bit of a difficulty of policymakers sometimes getting their head around that. You're seeing some lawmakers saying, well, we're worried, you know, if we keep paying people, well, we might not go back to work. I'm like, yeah, I get it. But it's sort of, that's the mindset that you've got, which is you're worrying about the wrong kinds of incentives right now. But it's very difficult to suspend your kind of convictions about the way the economy works in this extraordinary circumstance. And I think we're seeing that. That's one of the real obstacles here, I think. I'm thinking back to the spring when Congress did pass some packages of aid. I don't know if we call them stimulus or relief back then, but that was when the spread and the severity of the coronavirus in America wasn't anywhere close to what it is now in December. And yet Congress is now debating and maybe on the cusp of a deal for an additional aid package. Bill and maybe Richard too, can you talk about just the status of what Congress did in the spring and where those programs are now and where we are now looking ahead into 2021? Sure. The Congress enacted the CARES Act very quickly. It was on the order of $2 trillion. It was basically negotiated over a two or three week period, which is unheard of in terms of speed and magnitude of legislation. So there's no way to expect that they would have gotten everything right. But a lot of what they did made a lot of sense. They gave direct payments to households. They initiated pandemic unemployment insurance. They boosted food stamps or SNAP. They provided funds for health care for the states, for vaccine development. They did the Paycheck Protection Program. And you can argue with the evidence now, some of those programs are more effective than others. But generally, it was a very big effort aimed at relief uh, rather than stimulus. For pandemic unemployment insurance is best example. They're paying people extra money to stay out of the labor force, as Richard mentioned. There were some less desirable features. There are some 
corporate net operating loss provisions that kind of went way overboard. But in general, it's easy to criticize Congress. In general, I think CARES was more or less the right thing at the right time. The issue now is it's all run out, and yet the virus is still not contained. So we need another round of what I think of as relief as we're getting the vaccine out and as we're observing public health guidelines. Yeah, I think actually, just to underline what Bill said, really, I was proud of Congress during that period. Not often you get to say that. And there's this whole debate, you know, Congress is gridlocked and everyone's partisan and they're all venal and woe is me. And fair enough, there's a lot of evidence for that pessimism. But as Bill said, Congress just acted like a Congress for a while and getting that money through it. Given that the uncertainties of what they were doing, I think it was pretty darn good policymaking, pretty fast, passed in a bipartisan way. They got a lot of money out the door. The problem is now, and there's this whole discussion now about people suffering from COVID fatigue. You know, we just had enough now. And so I am going to go to my parents for Thanksgiving. I am going to try to had enough. COVID. The worst case of COVID fatigue appears to be in Congress, right? It's like enough already. It's like, oh, really? Do we have to do this again? So Congress is like the equivalent of the person thinking, I really, I still have to wear a mask. I still can't visit my parents. It's like, yeah, all of those rules still apply. And so actually the problem is that Congress is COVID fatigue or have potentially fatal long-run economic consequences. It feels like we're on the cusp of, in Congress, the New Deal, as we're recording this on Wednesday, December 16th. Do either of you know kind of what's in the deal or what's possible in the deal? And also, maybe more importantly, what's not in the deal? What's not in the deal is enough money. The numbers they're talking about are in the hundreds of billions. They should be in the trillions. And, you know, it's easy to throw around these numbers, but I don't see that the situation now is less dire than it was in the spring. In the spring, the unemployment rate was higher, it shot higher than it is now. But as Richard mentioned, the country is nine months into COVID. There's a lot of fatigue. There's a lot of benefits that have run out. There's a lot of pain being felt economically in other social indicators. So I think the debate right now seems to be whether there's a direct payment to households or aid to the states. And that seems like, to me, to be a bad debate, a bad set of choices. I feel like we should be doing both of them, as well as upping unemployment insurance, helping renters. And particularly appalling to me is the food situation in the country. The lines at food banks are always hard to see. They're particularly hard to see around the holidays. And they're particularly hard to see knowing that they are the outcome of long-term unemployment in a pandemic-stricken economy. So I think we need, at the very least, for humanitarian reasons, but also for just basic efficiency economic reasons, we need to make sure people have enough food. When the virus is under control, we may need more stimulus. We don't know because we're not in that situation. There's an argument that the economy will recover very quickly once the virus is under control, but we really don't know. But right now, I feel like we need a very aggressive relief package. And what's being discussed in Congress is quite a scaled back version of that. One of my understandings of what's not going to be in the bill too, and you mentioned it, is state and local aid. Can you talk about why aid to state and local governments is so important? Sure. First of all, state and local governments are big actors in the economy. They employ more than 10% of the non-farm labor force. Their spending is 
revenues are roughly half as big as the federal government. And states provide many of the services that people think of when they think of government. So they're a very important sector of the economy, both in people's lives in terms of their aggregate effects. The issue that comes up in recessions is that states have balanced budget rules. And that means if the economy falls and their revenue falls, that means they either have to raise other taxes to restore a balanced budget or they have to cut spending to restore a balanced budget. Both of those actions are bad for the economy during a recession. In the same way that we talk about the federal government offering stimulus or relief during a recession, the states are doing the opposite of that. Not because they're evil, but because they're constrained by these balanced budget rules. So they have to cut back spending or raise tax rates right when the economy needs them to be boosting spending or cutting tax rates. So from a macro perspective, you want the federal government to aid the states, to assist the states during recessions so they don't undertake policies that make the recession worse. Let's switch gears here a little bit. Richard, I want to turn to you now and talk in more depth about your paper. Your policy proposals are rooted in challenges facing the middle class, and you mentioned that earlier. Can you talk about what some of those challenges are? If you like, there are two sides to this coin. One is that there's been slower income growth in the middle of the distribution. That's the result of slower wage growth for a lot of middle class workers, especially men and some shifts in kind of family structure as well. And so there are lots of reasons behind that, but it's, I think, unquestionable that there has been slower growth in family incomes in the middle of the distribution. At the bottom of the distribution, the safety net benefits have done their job to some extent. Now, that does not mean that there isn't still a huge problem of tackling poverty in the US. It does just mean that for the people who are right at the bottom of the distribution, the bottom 20%, that a huge proportion of their income and services is accounted for through government transfers. And the people at the top, the top 20%, who I've written about before at some length, are doing just great by and large, you know, higher wages, et cetera. So slower income and then costs, right? I mean, you've had lots of conversation on this podcast, Fred, with, you know, colleagues about the cost of health insurance, for example. Obviously, the cost of college is another big one. People like Jenny Schutz have written a lot about the cost of housing. And so we're seeing this kind of a pinch between many of the expenses that middle-class families face. And I guess we should mention the capacity to retire right well and save towards that, which is something Bill has a lot of knowledge about, and pretty sluggish income growth. So that's the problem. And the question is, like, how quickly should we try and address that problem? And we've been looking at that problem unfold for quite a long time now, and we haven't really had concerted action on the policy front to deal with it. More concerned, perhaps, since 2016 about the condition of the American middle class, but we've yet to see, I think, sort of significant and bold policy action. And that's what we get into in this paper. And now the coronavirus pandemic has certainly exacerbated the social and economic conditions for everybody in America, the bottom of the socioeconomic spectrum in particular. And Richard, you and I talked about that in a podcast interview back in the spring, the the disparate impacts on especially women and people of color, Mm -hmm. frontline workers. Mm -hmm. But in this paper for the Blueprint series, you talk about the problems for the American middle class that the coronavirus pandemic is, is exacerbating. Can you talk about how the pandemic is making the middle class's problems even worse? The people who are being hit hardest by the pandemic are those who have to work and can't work from home, right? So for the professional classes or those who have kind of flexible working and work from home, actually, you know, the evidence is that those at the top of the distribution are doing really pretty well. 
right now economically. In fact, the fact that they're spending less is a problem for the lower income workers in their neighborhoods. That's pretty well kind of proven too. And if you weren't reliant on employment income at the beginning of the pandemic, then you won't have seen such a big shock. It's the people who were in precarious employment positions, reliant on a paycheck, didn't have much by way of savings. And those would fall pretty squarely into our definition of the middle class. I should say that, I think we've discussed in this podcast before, Fred, that there are as many definitions of the middle class in America as there are middle class Americans. You know, I've been working on this issue for a while now, and I've lived here for eight years, and I still don't really know what it means to be middle class. I have lots of long, boring papers on the question on the Brookings website if people want to check them out. For the purposes of our argument, we use the middle 60% of the income distribution, right? All of these definitions are arbitrary, but it does have the advantage of being the middle. The middle 60 and the average income for that group is about 70,000 for a family of three. Once you clear 40, 45,000, you were into that group. But once you break about 150, 160,000, then you're above that group. So that's the kind of range we're talking about. So these are people by and large, sort of not in six figures or low six figures if they are for a family of three. That's who the middle class are on our definition. And they're the ones who face this income squeeze over the last four decades. And some of whom, especially those in the lower quintiles, have been hit particularly hard by the pandemic, because as I said, they need to work and they can't just do it by Zoom from home. A note to listeners, you can hear my podcast interview with Richard and Isabel Sawhill from August of this year on the Brookings Cafeteria on their contract with the middle class and also visit our website and you can find a wealth of information and ideas in their contract with the middle class. It's a really great set of ideas and interactives and data. Richard, your paper proposes two major reforms. One of them is eliminating the income tax for most of the middle class and reforming a whole bunch of other taxes and also providing two years of free public college in exchange for some national service. Taking the tax side first, what taxes are you talking about? So in terms of the cut to the income tax, what Bell and I did was take a pretty simple approach and to say, if we think the problem is that the income growth hasn't been as great in the middle class it has for others, then what can we do about that? And one way to deal with that problem is to reduce the amount of tax that we take off people's income, right? Sometimes that's a pretty straightforward thing. How do we get more money into the hands of these families fast? And one is to eliminate income tax for about two thirds of the middle class. It's pretty expensive to go all the way up the distribution, but we do that by raising the standard deduction for a married couple to $100,000, right? So a married couple need to get into that six figures before they outrun the standard deduction. So that's a $1,600 average tax cut for middle class families. For those who are towards the bottom of our definition of middle class, you'd need to do more than that because they actually don't pay very much income tax. And so there we propose a worker tax credit, which is effectively just like EITC and other kinds of tax credit or wage subsidy to top it up. And so those are things that you could do pretty fast to get more money into the hands of middle class families next year. These problems have been unfolding over decades. And so if you, if you want to get money into their hands fast, of course, we need to do retraining and so on. And I'll come on to that. But there's something to be said for just making it quick. Also, it seems like that we might be in an era where we're going to need at least a degree of bipartisan agreement around some of these proposals. And it seems like a tax cut for the middle class might be something that you could get some Republican support for as well. We'll remember that the Tax Cuts and Jobs Act was described as a tax cut for the middle class, but was not a tax cut for the middle class. It would be nice to have a bill that actually did what it said it was going to do. And then the second is the idea of two years of free college. This is something we've really wrestled with, and I continue to wrestle with the pros and cons on this, this argument. But I think there is an argument now that at least through K-14, the first two years post-secondary should be seen as a public good. 
But we also feel quite strongly that there's a case for all Americans performing some kind of service, not necessarily military service, but civilian service. And there are all kinds of reasons for that, which we get into on the other podcast that we did with you. And so those two years of college would be free of financial costs, but it wouldn't be free, if you like, of social obligation. And I actually think that would be a powerful incentive towards more service and also a powerful reward for those who perform that service. We call it, as part of the contract, we call it scholarships for service. And we'd like the norm to be for all Americans to both get some post-secondary education or training. This would include vocational training too, but also it should be the norm for all Americans to perform some kind of national service. So the question like, where did you do your service should be as common a question as where did you go to college? And we've just combined those two into this scholarships for service plan, which would reduce the cost of college for middle-class families. I'm going to stay on this service question for a second and then go back to taxes, mindful of the fact that we have in Bill Gale, one of the institution's top tax economists, with us, but on yeah, this, I'm, uh, I'm pretty mindful of that as well. As we're having this conversation, <laughs> uh, you, you, you talk about K to 14 education as the new way of thinking as a public good. And we've often thought about public education, K through 12, as a public good. And I think it was really interesting in your paper how you kind of walk through the history of how that came about and how, at one point in America's history, having a high school diploma was enough to get you into the middle class and have a very successful middle class life. And that's no longer the case anymore. And so we have to push the boundary of that educational zone out some more. If you tracked the trend in number of years of education completed through to the 70s when it started to level off, if it hadn't started leveling off, we'd be at about 16 years now anyway. I've struggled with this. And it's important, I think, to declare one's inconsistencies. I actually, in my last book, said free college is a terrible idea. And the reason for that is because it's regressive on its face, right? The people who would most benefit from it are the ones who go to college the most and who go to the more expensive colleges for the longest, right? And those are disproportionately kids from more affluent backgrounds. But I think that combining it with the idea of service, that changes my view a bit somewhat. I think that's a different kind of contract. But secondly, the reason I've changed my view on this somewhat is that the arguments against making, say, the first two years of college free, and maybe even all four years of college free, the arguments against that, that it's regressive, that you don't need to pay for it, that the rich people don't need to pay for it, are exactly the same arguments that you can make against K-12 education being free, and were made against high school being made free almost a century ago, or whatever it was. So why does someone pay for my kids to go to K-12 school? I could have afforded that. That's incredibly regressive use of public money. And so it's actually quite hard to defeat you to argue against that. And so the question then is like, to where's the line between the public and the private good? And I'm increasingly convinced that we have to make at least some post-secondary education a public good from a financial point of view. But I also do think that this idea of rather than just continuing to just write checks, but also say, okay, but you've got to do something for us as well. It's a good moment, I think, to say to a new citizen or a new adult citizen, I should say, okay, well, you do your bit as well. And so you combine the idea of public good with the idea of public service. And I think that that's a nice way to make the contract clear, but also a way, I think, to make the argument for the public good of post-secondary education more palatable, because narrowly and on its face, there are problems with it. You know, if you do your quintiles, and we have many colleagues doing that, then you can sort of see it as regressive. I will also say that right now, we've deliberately chosen to do two years, right? The modal destination post-secondary for middle-class American kids is community college. That's the modal destination, followed by four-year publics, right? And certainly at the bottom 80%. And so you wouldn't necessarily think that from the debate about higher education in the US right now, that the modal destination for middle-class kids was community college. There's also a deliberateness to making these, to doing the two years free as well. Yeah, just one more note for listeners. In last week's episode of the Brookings Cafeteria, Martha Ross talked about her proposal to expand opportunities for national public service in the existing organization's 
also expand their stipend and also connect that to college tuition benefits. So listeners can go check that out. Let's go back to taxes. Richard, a few minutes ago, you were talking about cutting a range of taxes for the middle class, but then we start having to think about the revenue side. We cut taxes, we have to increase revenues somehow. And your paper talks about some ways to address those concerns. Yes, that's right. And we have to talk about the revenue side because we have Bill Gale on the podcast as well. So he's sort of glaring at me saying, yeah, where are you going to get the money from? And there are real arguments about what's the best way to help the middle class as well, right? This is a particularly bold proposal from Bell and I to cut income tax. There are many other ways that one could go about it. But there is a kind of question then about where does the money come from? And indeed, how do you think about the tax base more generally? And so what we do is we propose increasing taxes on what we call the three Cs, just to make it easier to remember, capital, consumption, and carbon. The polite thing to do at this point is the phrase you use is something like drawing heavily on the work of our colleagues or building on the work of our colleagues. The truth is sort of cutting and pasting the work of our colleagues, Bill Gale, Adele Morris, and others. We essentially argue to increase some of the taxes on capital expand the estate tax, increase step-up basis. We argue for increasing the corporate tax rate to about 25%. You can argue about that. We argue to the introduction of a carbon tax, a carbon tax at $25 a ton would raise just north of $100 billion a year, according to Adele Morris's work. And then lastly, and this is Bill's work directly, a consumption tax, right? The US is quite unusual in not having a national consumption tax, a VAT, a value-added tax. We propose basically just copying Bill 10%, which is still pretty low by international standards. And even when you do lots of work to offset the potentially regressive impact of that, which Bill's proposal does, that still raises you $200 billion ish maybe a bit more. And so there's money to be raised. It's to be clear, that's a pretty significant recasting of the tax system. What you're doing is you're taxing carbon and you're taxing spending and you're taxing capital in order to tax income less. And by income, in this case, we largely mean wages, right? And so, look, we have to raise quite a lot of money to do the things we want to do. In fact, we should raise more money. The question for tax policy is always, what should we tax? And that's just not an economic question. That's a normative question. That's a question of like, what do we want to encourage? What do we want to discourage, et cetera? And it's pretty clear, I think, that they're arguing we should tax wealth more than work. And that we would have a more sustainable and fairer tax system if we rested more of the burden on consumption and capital and carbon than on working people, on the wages of working people. It's rebalancing. Let me just add the case for imposing higher taxes on the affluent, I think, is particularly strong. First of all, their income in the top groups has gone up dramatically in the past 30, 40 years, but average tax rates haven't. In a progressive system, you expect the share of income going to taxes to go up as income goes up. In addition, there are a number of ways to raise taxes on the wealthy that don't necessarily hurt the economy significantly. One, for example, would be taxing capital gains at death. Another is enforcing the system better. Evasion, tax evasion, which is illegal, not paying of taxes, runs about $600 billion per year. It's 3% of GDP. We'll never capture all of that, but we could capture a significant share of it. And we know where it is, basically. It's mostly in sole proprietor income and rental income and farm income. And evasion rates in those categories are over 50%. That is, more than half the income earned in those sectors is simply not reported to the Internal Revenue Service. So we can get a lot of money there. The other thing I'll just say is the case for a carbon tax is overwhelming and has been overwhelming for 20, 30 years. 
And occasionally you see kind of green shoots of interest or support in this. And I'm hoping we can in the next year or the year after implement this as part of a broader transportation and energy package. Well, implementation, I think, is a key question. And I kind of want to use that to pivot to kind of wrapping up this conversation. And mindful that there's a new administration coming to Washington in just a few weeks, but possibly with a divided Congress. And even if it's not divided, I think it's going to be a close Congress between Republicans and Democrats. I want to ask each of you if you're hopeful that some progress on these and related policy ideas can happen. I have hope, but I would describe myself as pessimistic that we're going to solve any big issues if we get a split Congress. The tribalism is rampant up there. Tribalism being, if you're for it, I'm against it. Just kind of a reflexive response. And we've seen way too much of that in the past, but I expect we will continue to see a fair amount of that in the future. Let me just be clear. It's not an accident that this is happening. I mean, policymakers are very good at understanding the incentives that they face. And, you know, they wake up every day and say, are we going to cooperate or are we going to fight? And so far, every day, the last several years, they've decided they want to fight. And I think that reflects these deeper divisions in society. I'm not a political scientist. I don't want to espouse too much on this, but I generally am pessimistic about the ability of a split Congress to get big things done. I'm not a political scientist either, so we all have to add that caveat and then go on to make political science claims anyway. So I assume split or very, very narrow Congress. I share a lot of Bill's pessimism about the possibility of getting big things done. I think it will be hard anyway, given the crisis that's been inherited. The house is on fire. And so you're simultaneously going to be trying to sort of deal with the fact that the house is on fire in the shape of the pandemic and try and do these structural reforms at the same time. And so I think it'll be a huge lift. And I agree with the problem is if they're for it, we're against it problem. But there are a few things I'd want to look at. I'll just take one example, which is the prospect for movement on apprenticeships. Right. Annalise Gogo, who's one of our colleagues here, is an expert on this. The House passed an apprenticeship bill a couple of weeks ago. And that's a classic area where actually Donald Trump invested more in it. He had a commission on apprenticeships, etc. Everyone's in favor of them in theory. But both sides are digging in on these quite technical issues around does the employer credentialize them? The Republicans see apprenticeships as a thing the unions did back in the day and so on. So it's kind of digging in around this. And so it sort of feels to me as if there is scope for a huge bipartisan deal on something like apprenticeships, right? That really should be, which would be great on all kinds of fronts. Will we get it? I think it's a good test because they're almost creating reasons not to agree and getting dug in. Uh, 10% of compromise on each side would get a huge bill on apprenticeships through, is my guess, right? Are they going to give that 10%? But we're in an era of politics now where it feels like you give these people an inch, they'll take a mile, right? It's like trench warfare. It's like World War I warfare, right? And unless we can create a culture within which like, you can just give a little bit without being slaughtered by the other side or by your side, they're all looking over their shoulder, then there's no hope for compromise. And so this is a much deeper question that we have colleagues who are better equipped to answer than us. But I will uh, repeat the caveat that I'm not a political scientist, but I think Richard made a really good point there at the end, which is that people who want to compromise are worried about their own party, the other side. They're worried about being primaried from the extreme sides of the spectrum. And that's a kind of a new threat 
opposite of the kind of typically the way we think of politicians is gravitating toward the center in order to get in, in order to get more votes. One final note for listeners before we kind of wrap up with a larger question that I want to ask you, and that's in last week's podcast with Martha Ross, Annalise Gogar also talked about her apprenticeship policy proposal. So a lot of synergy between these episodes. So again, expanding out kind of into the biggest picture that we can think of, we've just gone through an extraordinary presidential election. In some ways, we're still kind of going through it. Huge outpouring of democratic activity, democracy with a small d. Richard, you end your paper with a statement that a prosperous middle class provides the foundation for a strong society and a healthy democracy. Can you expand on that point? Yeah, I hope you define it. The middle class is going to account for a, a significant proportion of the population. We actually argue at the beginning of the contract that we spoke to you about before, Fred, that actually the U.S. is to some extent a middle class nation. Right? That's one of the reasons I moved here. What I mean by that is kind of sense of independence, aspiration, opportunity, etc. Right? The opportunities for self betterment and so on, away from sort of deferential politics and societies you get in Europe. So I think Joe Biden actually, when he came to do, launch our project a couple of years, ago, he talked about middle class values, right? And that sounds so old fashioned, right? The idea of like, and it might even be a little bit sort of controversial to talk about, right? But actually the values of like you work hard and you can get ahead and you can get your kids to college and you can have a decent retirement and so on, right? Okay, if that's a judgment call, well, it's one that 98% of Americans agree with him on, right? That those are basically you should be paid reasonably well, you should be treated well, you should be able to send your kids, all of that stuff. Um, and so actually peculiarly, it's a much bigger crisis in America than it would be in another country, precisely because the prospect of rising into the American middle class has been one of the great engines of upward mobility for this country and arguably for the world. That's why we attract so many immigrants, right? But also the idea that once you get into the middle, you can enjoy a good life and you're not going to see the folks above you running away, the disproportionate share of the riches, right? That's also important too. So the middle, a strong middle, is very important as a way of the kind of updraft, as a place that you can go, a place to aim, right? That's highly motivating for people, but also kind of sense that once you've made it there, then you can look around and feel like, yeah, I'm sharing this country's wealth and I'm contributing to this country's wealth rather than feeling like you're being left behind. And so I think for political reasons and cultural reasons, not just within the US, but more generally, the state of the American middle class is hugely important in that broader sense, but more narrowly, which is that unless middle-class Americans broadly defined feel like they are getting a fair shake, then the political consequences of that could be quite significant. And I think that if we haven't learned that in the last few years, then we haven't been paying attention. Bill, in a similar fashion, can you situate your policy proposals for more economic relief and stimulus in that same context in the health of our democracy and our society? Absolutely. Again, the gist of my proposals are that we address these problems now, that the benefits would exceed the costs, that we have time to deal with long-term debt, well in the future. And I just want to leave you with this. Imagine an economy where people had enough food to eat, had affordable, effective health insurance. They uh, lived in affordable housing. They were assured of living in a safe neighborhood, assured of getting a quality education, and assured of being able to use that education to work while another quality worker took care of their children during the day. That's not socialism. That's well-functioning capitalism. And that's what we should be aspiring to. And actually, I think we have the means to make significant dents in those problems and help people move along the spectrum toward those features that I mentioned. But it will require significant government intervention. It's not something the market can do by itself. 
So I think good policy supporting the things that Richard mentioned and that I just talked about is essential to a healthy democracy and a healthy society. Well, let's leave it there. This has been a fascinating and important conversation. Bill Gale, Richard Reeves, thank you both for sharing your time and your expertise with us today. I really appreciate it. Thank you. Always a pleasure. Thank you. You can find their papers in the Economic Growth and Dynamism theme in our Blueprints for American Renewal and Prosperity series on our website, brookings.edu slash blueprints. Brookings Cafeteria Podcast is possible only with the help of a team of amazing colleagues. My thanks go out to audio engineer Gaston Reveredo and our intern Ryan Jacobs, to Bill Finan, director of the Brookings Institution Press, who does the book interviews, to Marie Wilkin, Adriana Pita, and Chris McKenna for their collaboration, and finally to Camilo Ramirez and Emily Horn for their guidance and support. The Brookings Cafeteria is brought to you by the Brookings Podcast Network, which also produces Dollar and Cents, the current and our events podcasts. Email your questions and comments to me at bcp at brookings.edu. If you have a question for a scholar, include an audio file and I'll play it and the answer on the air. Follow us on Twitter at Policy Podcasts. You can listen to the Brookings Cafeteria in all the usual places. Visit us online at brookings.edu. Until next time, I'm Fred Dews.